I spend a good part of Saturdays trying not touch this on Fridays, not touch sermon preparation and just uh, enjoy my family and enjoy family devotional time. But I spend part of my Sundays trying to re-engage what I left on Thursday. And I found myself yesterday really in a place where what we're engaging this morning is the godness of Jesus and enjoying the godness of Jesus. I found myself in a place where I was having a difficult time enjoying the godness of Jesus for the uncomfort of the fatness of Ben. I know it's funny, but man, gluttony is a sin. And man, I'm the chief glutton this past week. And it's not like, hey man, air my dirty laundry. It's confess our sins one to another so that we may be healed. And that we can't hope to come to the living God if we're crossways with Him or crossways with each other. So what I want to do in these next couple minutes before we even begin to engage this passage is I want to pray on behalf of uh, this people, behalf of you. I want to pray personally. I've already reckoned with Him in my overindulgence this week. It's easy to reduce by calling it that. But I encourage you to reckon with the living God in these next few minutes. If you're crossways with him, if you've wrecked the 57 Chevy, you're going to toss in the keys and hope to have fellowship with him this morning, then reckon with him in these next few minutes and this quietness of your heart and just reckon with him say, Lord, I've been crossways with you. I've done you wrong. And if you're crossways with a brother or sister or a family member or a friend, man, reckon with him too. Nothing wrong with a husband leaning over to his wife and saying, I'm sorry. Before we step into the throne room together, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, in these next few minutes as a people, we want to reconcile with you. We want to keep a short, very short and frequently reconciled list with you, reckoning or recognizing that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover our sins, but a daily engagement of it. We recognize that while grace sustains us unto salvation, that grace in a daily way, in a daily journey, in a walk with you decays. And in a fresh way, we want to sit at your feet this morning and ask your forgiveness for just the various sins we may have committed this week, the various sins we may have committed this morning. Pray that you'll call them to mind, Lord, and put them on our hearts. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for wronging you, for disobeying you. I ask your forgiveness in front of this people for looking for satisfaction and comfort in a meal rather than the God of the meal. And Lord, here on Sunday morning after a week of overindulgence, I confess that who can find enjoyment or contentment apart from you? Lord, also I pray this morning that if any of us are crossways with a brother or a sister or a wife or a husband or a son or a daughter, that we can reconcile with them, Lord, and keep short lists with each other considering what's at stake. Pray that you'll find us a sweetly, weakly reconciled people, vertically and horizontally. Lord, I pray that in that horizontal forgiveness that we give toward each other, Lord, that it would be reckless forgiveness.
wholehearted, abandoned forgiveness where we make ourselves completely vulnerable to each other again, that we don't cordon off little areas that are no longer available, but that we completely offer ourselves up. Trusting and knowing that we will be hurt again. But thanking you all the while that your grace is sufficient. And as you've forgiven us daily, weekly, for our frequent sins, that we can forgive another. Lord, I hope and pray that by the work of the Holy Spirit that we step into your throne room reconciled right now, confessing that the blood of Jesus is sufficient. We're bathed in it by grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn to John 14. We're going to pray again before we engage our sermon, but I want to give some introductory remarks. We've been in John 14, 1, the last few weeks. And I want to read it. Before I read it, I want to give you a little bit of context. John 14 is the last hours where Jesus is going up to the cross. He's walked with guys for three years, these disciples, and he's sitting with them, now minus Judas. Judas has left the table. He's run off to collect his cash. Jesus has announced that Judas was his betrayer. The guy who's kept the money bags for them for the last three years, likely the most trusted among them, has left the table in their trouble. And also Jesus, who's walked with them for three years, who said, come follow me, they left their work trucks, slash fishing boats, slash tax collector booths. They left their cubicles, they left their friends and their family, and they went to follow him and left everything. That's the context here where He's preparing them for bad news. He's telling them now, I'm going to a place where you can't go. I know you followed me for three years, but where I go, you can't follow me. And it seems their hearts were troubled. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. It's actually a command. It sounds like a suggestion in the original Greek. It's an imperative. It's a command. Let not your hearts. Thou shalt not have a troubled heart. It's not not ever have a troubled heart. It's don't keep a troubled heart. And here's how you don't do that. You believe in God. And then the next thing he says, believe also in me. He gives him the only answer for a troubled heart is Godward belief. But what he does in this also, what we engaged last week and what we're going to continue to engage this morning is he refines belief. He says, all right, you guys already believe in God. Let me give you a little bit more precision. Let me round that thing out to help you understand what that means. Believe also in me. And what he's doing in that statement, you've got to appreciate that a man that walked and talked, that wore sandals, that stubbed his toe, that ate food, that slept at night, is saying, believe in me like I'm God. This is a big deal. It's a huge deal. He's putting himself on par with the living God. And in fact, what he's doing is he's commanding them to believe in him also. I addressed the skeptic last week. I'll address the skeptic briefly this morning. I don't know if we have any skeptics here among us, but there will be some that listen online. I guarantee it. Let me first of all engage the skeptic and encourage you to listen to part one. Because some of the things you hear this morning are dependent on part one, and I'll mention what those are in a moment. But I urge you to look at them together. Some of the credibility of his claims today are founded in some realities that we looked at last week. And if you believe, skeptic, that the Bible has some historical value, if you believe there was a man named Jesus, 
that he had a brother named James, that he walked with a dude named John, that he walked with another dude named Peter, that he walked with another dude named Judas that betrayed him. If you believe he made certain claims about himself and that he was crucified for those claims, then you've got the rudimentary tools to engage last week and this week and maybe, possibly, through the work of the Holy Spirit, see the godness of Jesus Christ. I urge you, skeptic, to engage it. My prayer for you is unapologetic. My prayer for you is that the Lord will open the eyes of your hearts to see this story as the truth. These testimonies are from biased men, and I mentioned it last week. There's no such thing as an unbiased man. To be unbiased, to be completely unbiased, would mean that you're random. The most random person I know is Mark Atkinson. (laughs) But even Mark Atkinson has patterns. Even Mark has patterns and bias. You cannot be unbiased. The trick is to find the right bias. The man that's biased along the truth. So that's where I took us last week. And I encourage the skeptic skeptic to not jettison something just because you recognize bias. Because indeed there's bias. But my prayer is that God will open the eyes of your hearts to see this story is true. And secondly, that I'll give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect this morning. Don't mistake passion for brutality. (laughs) Sometimes that happens. But please, I hope you'll see gentleness and respect. That's my prayer. Second thing, for the believer. This is another very impractical message. Last week was just so impractical. You probably walked away with nothing, no to-do list, other than to to enjoy it, which is the to-do list. It's another impractical message. But I want to remind you that God is not looking for practitioners. He's looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. I shared a quote this week via email, and I'll share it again this morning. This quote is from John Owen. Listen to this. He says, The difference between believers and unbelievers as to knowledge is not so much in the matter of knowledge, but in the manner of knowledge. He says, unbelievers, some of them may know more and be able to say more of God, His perfection and His will, than many believers. But they know nothing as they ought, nothing in a right manner, nothing spiritually and savingly, nothing with a holy heavenly light. You can be an unbeliever and know a bunch of stuff. You can be a faithful church attender and know a bunch of stuff. You can have the unofficial name on the end of your pew because everybody knows where you sit and know a bunch of stuff and yet not know Him rightly. It's not the matter of knowing. We're not collecting data. We're massaging data. We're enjoying data. He goes on to say, he says, The excellency of a believer is not that he has a large apprehension of things, but that what he does apprehend, which perhaps may be very little, he sees it in the light of the Spirit of God, in a saving and soul-transforming light. And this is that which gives us communion with God. What he's saying is there, the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is that the believer apprehends truths and is apprehended by truths. A believer is arrested with these realities. They're not collecting data and facts. A believer's talking about them over breakfast on Tuesday. A believer, while he's driving in his car, is thinking about these realities on Thursday. A believer is convicted with these realities when he's engaging in sin on Saturday. Not, Saturday, not picking on Saturday. It's a random day. Monday. Convicted with these realities. That's a believer. 
It's a believer that's raging with sin and sin within and doing everything he can to mortify sin within, the work of the believer. Engaging these truths. It's not the matter of knowledge, it's the manner of knowledge. So I encourage the believer, man, engage it rightly this morning. This Sunday and last Sunday may be two of the most important messages I've ever had the privilege and responsibility of preaching. So let me pray before we engage this week's message. Lord, first this morning I want to pray for John Tate, a pastor of Central Christian Church. I want to pray for him and his family, Lord. I, I pray for his marriage, that his marriage is rich, that it's a walking visual of the gospel, that when people look at how he treats his wife, that they get a visual illustration of how Christ treats, treats us, the church. Lord, I pray that as they watch his wife follow his leadership, that they have a view of how the church follows Christ's leadership. Lord, I pray that his family members just are swimming in gospel illustration by the way he's living out the gospel at home. I pray that this message is wrecking him week by week. I pray that he is mortifying sin week by week, that he's in the, on and in the journey of sanctification by the work of the Holy Spirit, not by his own doing. Lord, I pray that as he studies and prepares to teach and preach, that first it's finding purchase in his life and in his home. And Lord, I pray then that it's gushing out and spilling out on family and friends and pulpit. Lord, I pray that that little church on the central downtown will just be gorged with worshipers who are feasting on the truth and are being saved by the word. Lord, I pray too that we will be true partners with this family and this church. Never have a spirit of competition, but a spirit of encouragement. Pray that we'll cheer for each other for your glory. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for the skeptic who may be here among us or who may be listening to this online. Lord, I pray that you will open the eyes of their hearts and they will see these realities as true and that they will eat them. They will not just acknowledge them, but they will be apprehended by them. And I pray the same thing for the believers who are confessing Christ as Lord, that these things will not just be mere data facts, but they will be worship points, worship handles that we cling to on Tuesday, that we grab hold of in our loss or in our triumph, things that we go to instead of going to the kitchen or the, the mall or the gossip chain, that we can go to these things in worship and wonder as true worshipers who are worshiping in spirit and truth. Lord, I beg for that. I beg for that in myself. I beg for that in my family. I beg for that in this people. I pray that in these next few minutes that you'll find this people at your feet enjoying the godness of our Jesus. May you be honored and enjoyed and savored in the next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week we engaged six truths of Jesus and his godness. First was that Jesus taught his followers to pray to him. He taught them to pray in proportion. When they asked him to teach us to pray, he said... He prayed to the Father, hallowed be your name. But in this occasion that we looked at last week, at least one occasion, he said, it's okay to pray to me. In fact, Stephen, when he's breathing his last as he's stoned, while Paul's holding the cloaks, he prayed to Jesus. He also taught them, or he also forgave sins. And the Pharisees recognized what this this meant when he said, I forgive your sins. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Indeed, 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus forgave sins. He owned up to his godness at great personal cost. You may remember the dialogue last week where Caiaphas is saying, I adjure you, tell us if you are the Christ. And he responded and said, you have said so. Now you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand and coming on the clouds. And they tore their robes because they knew what he was saying. They said, there you go. What's he deserve? Death for that sort of blasphemy. And you remember last week the detailed description of the scourging and then the crucifixion at any point. He could have said, I'm just kidding. Please stop beating me. Please stop plucking my beard out. Please stop hitting me with that whip with little pieces of metal at the end of it, ripping off bone and flesh. Please don't put those nails into my wrists and feet. Please don't do this brutality to me. I was just kidding. But he owned it to the very end. He has cross credibility is what he has. Cross credibility. He also claimed sinlessness. And his perfections were witnessed by all those that were hung out with him. It wasn't just this random statement that nobody else owned up to, but his own brother James, who knew him from the beginning, reckoned him as a righteous one. John, Peter, Judas, Pilate, the neighboring thief on the neighboring cross, and then a Roman centurion all said the same thing. He's the innocent one. He claimed sinlessness and To me, the sweetest one is that Roman centurion who watched how he died. You remember how what I read last week, how people died? Urinating on people, spitting on them, cussing them. The true humanity is going to come out on that cross, yet Jesus died differently. So much so that this Roman centurion is standing before him, worshiping God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. I've never seen anything like it. He's got cross credibility. He's got sinless Um, there's a word that starts with a V I'll come back to later. I can't remember it right now. He demonstrated his power too. Not as a magician with sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors, but as the real deal. High step in the high seas. Saying, get up and walk. Let me give you legs that you've never had. Just had bones and flesh down there. Let me give you some muscle. Let me give you some sight, blind man. Let me give you some food, hungry thousands. Not as a magician, not with sleight of hand, but as a real power embodied. And he came down from above. There was never a time when he was not. It would take someone who has always been to come down from above. And there was never a time when he was not. His Bethlehem's beginnings, Bethlehem beginnings were not his beginnings. They may have been his flesh beginnings. But they were not his beginnings. This week, we're going to look exclusively in the first paragraph in John chapter 14. I'll go to a couple different places as we expose this and engage this. But these next five points of the godness of Jesus will come from just this first paragraph. Let me read it together just before we engage it and pick it apart. You know the verse, first verse already, probably by heart by now. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. 
And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pick this thing apart. First of all, in verse 2. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? A few years ago, Christy and I went to uh, Playa del Carmen for an anniversary. And we toured some Mayan ruins there. They they have a couple of different versions there. There's there's Chichen Chichen Itza or something like that. And then Tulum. We went to Tulum. And it was pretty amazing, pretty remarkable what people built probably a couple thousand years ago, maybe more than that. Inhabited up to a thousand years ago. These Mayan ruins were pretty incredible. And there are some all over South America and Mexico that are pretty amazing. This last summer I got to go to Petra. Some of you might know what Petra is. Petra is in Jordan. Petra is a city that's virtually built out of rock. I don't mean kind of built out of rock. I mean like rock sheer face They carved this city out. Whole buildings are built in the rock. And they have these really ornate structures and really ornate facades built by the Nabataeans a couple thousand years ago. Another another time, a couple years ago, I got to take Christy and the family to Cologne, Germany, where we saw the Dom in Cologne, Germany. This most incredible cathedral thing I've ever seen in my life. You come out of the subway and you walk up these stairs and you just see this black, immense structure. And you step out and you, you almost fall down standing before this thing. It's so amazing. The Dom. You go in it and you just your mouth is ajar. You're looking all stupid. Walking around. Flies going in and out of your mouth. It's the most amazing architectural structure I've ever seen. They started building in 1248. They finished it in 1880. That's a long time to be building something. Some of you builders, but somebody you building the house. Can't be that bad. <laughs> the reason it took so long is because it's so amazing. We saw some pictures when we in Germany where in World War II, all of Cologne was, bur- was burned and bombed. Except right in the middle, it shows the cathedral. It only got bombed a couple times, but it wasn't destroyed. And it's the only thing standing, poking up above the landscape there. Architectural wonder. Tulum, Chichen Itza, Petra, Cologne, Germany. These are all amazing constructions. All amazing examples of engineering. It's remarkable that these people were able, able to build these sort of things without caterpillar. But while Tulum and Chichen Itzu were amazing builds, I want you to know and realize and recognize that they're now called ruins. Ruins. While there's still a lot of structure there, they're still called ruins. While Petra is amazing, the edges have softened. Chunks of rock are coming off here and there. And all it's going to take is one earthquake before it's a big pile of rubble and just a memory in somebody's photo album. And while the Dom is an amazing sight to behold and it's built to withstand even a war, it's always surrounded by scaffolding. Always. One side or another has these incredible scaffolds where they're fixing it and maintaining it and refurbishing it and restoring it and rebuilding it because all of these things and every other marvel of construction that you can put in your mind was built by temporary hands. 
And just as those temporary hands ended up dying and being buried, that structure, even, even built with granite, marble, rock, it too is temporary. And it will have to be refurbished, restored, and rebuilt with more new temporary hands. But our Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And this place that he prepares is an eternal place. This place that he earns is a once and for all time place. It's not a place that will need refurbishing or rebuilding. It will never be considered ruins. It's not temporary or subject to moth, rust, decay, earthquake, tsunami. Jesus does something that only God could do. He builds an eternal dwelling. He earns an eternal place. He holds a permanent seat for His people. Because He's God. Second thing in verse 3. He says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is one of my favorites. This one and the last point are my favorites this morning. They're both probably the most difficult to get to. He says, I will take you to myself. I want you to appreciate that what he's saying, he's encouraging these troubled hearts with a promise that he'll come get them and take them to himself. There's such weight to this. I want to ask you a diagnostic question. I've asked this before. It's probably been a year or so ago that I've asked Crosspoint this question. So many of you haven't heard this question. But I want to ask this question for you to gnaw on here for the next few minutes. If you were to go to heaven and find that Jesus wasn't there, would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with heaven if Jesus wasn't there. Man, I know how things go when we talk about heaven. We talk about seeing family and friends and loved ones we believe who've gone on to be with the Lord. That's not inappropriate. But that's what we talk about. We talk about our roomy mansions and our bejeweled crowns. Somebody does a good job on a task. You're like, jewels in your crown, brother. Word of encouragement. So we think about those roomy mansions and those jeweled crowns and those loved ones, but the question is, do we make much of seeing Him? Do we make much of engaging Him? If not, then we may be guilty of hoping for heaven simply as a better alternative to hell. Or we may be hoping for heaven simply as this divine family reunion, minus the the vegetable trays and the little rental room in the hotel. And that's all heaven is. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus said these words. Listen, don't turn there, just listen. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his own mother, his wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's giving words to the picture that if heaven is for you is just about a big family reunion, then you don't know him at all. If for you it's about your mansions and your crowns and it's not about Christ, then you don't know him at all. That singular focus on Jesus is what he's saying there is that it's as if you hate all things, even the things that you really love, like your kids, like your wife, 
Like your family, the people that you would die for. It's as if you hate them compared to the singular laser love of Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's not saying go hate your family. See, and it's as if you hate them compared to this love and this affection. I can't wait to see Jesus when I get there. The psalmist, David, engages it too. Listen to what he says in Psalm 27. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. One thing have I asked to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. One thing. Paul pointed to this sort of singular love of Jesus in Philippians 3. He said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is coming from a dude that was a virtual Harvard grad. Studied under a dude named Gamaliel. He was the man. He says, I count all that at loss. I count my diploma as loss. I count my family as loss. I count all my achievements as loss compared to knowing this Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a very sensitive version of what that word really is in the original language. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. These sort of statements reconcile with Him assuring His believers, Hey dudes, don't worry. I'm going to take you to myself. I'm going to come get you so that you will be with me. It sounds like he's making much of himself, doesn't he? It sounds like he's into himself. It sounds like he's putting himself out there as the treasure. What I want you to appreciate is that he's like a man should never be, but he's like a God ought to be. It would be unsavory. It would be grotesque for a man to say that. For a man to put himself out there as the treasure. But it's perfectly appropriate for a God to put himself out there as the treasure. He's making a statement of his godness. And make no mistake that he expects to be enjoyed and worshipped above all things. All things. Because he's worthy of that. Because he's God, sinless perfection, King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. Your answer to that diagnostic question is more important than anything else you may hear today. Would you be okay in heaven if Jesus wasn't there? He assures his followers, Hey dude, this okay. I'm going to bring you to myself. I'm going to come back and get you and bring you to the treasure. Listen to these words from a guy named J.C. Ryle, who's an Anglican preacher back in the 1800s. He says these words. Listen. He says, Alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die? How little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die, while they manifestly have no saving faith, no real acquaintance with Christ. You give Christ no honor here. (laughs) You have no communion with Him. You do not love Him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. 
Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. Its employments would be a weariness and a burden to your heart. Oh, repent and change before it be too late. He says, I'll bring you to myself because I'm the treasure. If you do not count him as God, if you do not count him as the supreme treasure, don't expect him to take you to himself. Because that's the way it works. That's what worship is. That's what faith is. That's what being apprehended by that truth is. Not mere acknowledgement of that truth. It's a big difference. Now, before I engage the next three, I want to just make this brief comment. If you're lukewarm about him, then you haven't heard what he said. Any man that's claiming to be God, you better hate or you better love. Because he's claiming to be God, nothing less. He's claiming to be the treasure. And next you'll see he's claiming to be the way to the treasure. Verse 6. Thomas has just said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds to him and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's making the statement that he is the way to God. While many spiritual teachers have claimed to know how to get to God, no spiritual teacher of any credibility has ever claimed to actually be how to get to God. You understand the difference? Lots of people can show you the way, but only Jesus can be the way. Then the next one comes from the same verse. I'm going to read it again and look at it in a different way. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This next point is that he goes by, goes by God. He goes by God. Turn to John chapter 4. I'm going to show you just kind of a little shotgun of verses. As you're turning there, I'm going to share with you a verse that we've just learned recently as a family. We're working through a uh, catechism as a family. And Moses, before Moses led his people out, led God's people out of Egypt, Moses is meeting with God. And Moses says, hey, God, you know, God tells him, go lead my people out of Egypt. And he says, okay, God, well, who shall I say sent me? And says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he goes on to say, tell, tell the people of Israel that the I am sent me to you. He said to Moses, I am who I am. You may have heard that name before where God refers to himself as the I am. That name, the name Yahweh, also comes from that. They believe that the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, which is just four consonants. There's no vowels in it. It's a name Yahweh. Jews won't even say it. They have such reverence for the name. All they do is call it the name that Yahweh, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, the Jewish letters, stand for I am who I am. God's very name is tied to this I amness. Now let me show you something. I want to show you that Jesus goes by God. Look at John chapter 4, verse 26. Jesus is meeting with the woman at the well. 
She's asking him a question in verse 25. She says, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, it's lost in translation here, but in the original language, it is the Greek ego eimi, which means I am. Literally, this reads, I am who speak to you. It is the I am who's speaking to you, lady. The one you were talking about? I am. This is not one of just a few. This is one of many. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus has fed the multitudes. They try and make him king. He sends them across the Sea of Galilee. He sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee in a boat to Capernaum. He goes off up to the mountainside to pray. During the middle of the night, they get in a storm. You know, the disciples are out there. They're rocking in a storm. They're fearful. And they look over, and then there's Jesus like a... They think he's an apparition, like a ghost. And they see him high-stepping the high seas. Just walking across the waves, heading across to Capernaum. And man, they're scared to death. And in our Bible's translation, it says, It is I, do not be afraid. And that just doesn't sound like Jesus. And you know what? It's not like Jesus. Because in the original language, he says, I am. Do not be afraid. Wouldn't it be inappropriate when you're high-stepping the high seas to say, Oh, dudes, it's just me. Move over, let me climb in the boat. Don't be afraid. He makes a statement of his godness. He says, I am. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid now. Don't be afraid forevermore. Because God is about to climb in the boat. You see that? He's claiming to be God. John 6, 35. We're going to move quicker now. He says, I am the bread of life. Notice that he doesn't say, I am like the bread of life he says i am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger whoever believes in me shall not thirst look down the page of verse 48 he says i am the bread of life i'm not like it i'm not a simile or a metaphor of it i am it verse 51 he says i am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever when i say that he goes by god what i want you to understand it would be like if you're sitting around a house and somebody says hey man did john come by here and you're like well i don't know a guy named john there was a guy that came by here earlier that goes by john and you're like well (laughs) if he goes by he's probably john what i'm saying is that jesus goes by god he goes by, well, John came by here. Well, it must have been John. Well, I am came by here. It must have been I am. When Jesus is out there, you say, hey, God. And he turns around and looks and says, yeah, I am. Here's some more. I gave you the John 6 ones. Look at John 8. John 8, 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here's probably the most pronounced one. In verse 58 of the same chapter. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He goes by God. Hey, God. Yes. Chapter 11, verse 25. It's riddled. This whole book of John is riddled with I am statements. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then the one that we're engaging this morning, the one that's led us on this journey. Thomas says, hey, we don't know what way to go. 
You say you're going to come get us. You're going to take us to yourself. We don't know how you, where you're going or how to get there. And he says, I am the way. Ego, I, me. The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now here's the consequences of not getting this. Turn to John 8. Turn back to John 8. Look at it. John 8, 24. Speaking to unbelievers or guys that don't seem to be believing. Actually, he's preaching. It looks like later they do believe in him, but by the end of the chapter, they want to stone him. This is like the revival gone bad that I preached on before, where they're sitting out on the front row filling in their decision cards, and by the end of it, they're picking up stones, wanting to stone him. His disciples are saying, Jesus, I wish you stop preaching, because it was a great revival until you kept going. But here's what he says. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am. It says, I am he in our translation. In the original language, it says, ego, I me. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You may not appreciate the gravity of what's taking place here with these sort of statements, but look down in verse 59 of that chapter. The ones who were filling out decision cards before says they picked up stones to throw at him. They realize he's claiming godness. He's going by God. Hey, God. Jesus says, yes, I am. And the last one, this is the most robust to me and the sweetest one of the batch. Back in John chapter 14. Go back over there. Let's look at it. Let me prepare you before we engage this. I know we've engaged some things that made you have to think and process and kind of stick with it. I beg you, if you've been disengaged to this point or if you've disengaged, please re-engage on this point. It's going to be the most difficult to expose, but if you get it, you'll be arrested with it. Look at this. John chapter 14, verse 7. He just said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The claim that he's making right here is this. He's saying, knowing me means knowing the Father. He's saying, Seeing me is seeing the Father. That's a big claim. Knowing me is to know Yahweh. Seeing me is to see Yahweh. This is the last point that he looks like God when you really take a good look. See, the problem is, for many of us, our whole view of Jesus is limited to the Gospels. And worst of all, for many of us, and I confess this, your whole view of Jesus can be limited to some sugar stick verses in the Gospels. Some things that preachers like to preach. Things that are easy to preach. John 3.16. I heard on one account that some guys were having a deacon's meeting and one guy stood up. They were talking about whether or not to have elders or some other issue was come up, had come up. And some guy stood up and said, man, all I need is John 3.16. I don't need the rest of that stuff. I'm like, no, you need John 3.15 also. And John 3.17. And John 4. And Revelation. And every other part of the full council to understand this Jesus 
The worst case scenario is that all you've got is sugar stick sermons from preachers that like to preach the easy sermons and give you the things that make you feel good about our Jesus, not the things that make you quake. The next worst case is that you might, from, just from the Gospels, contain Jesus to walking, talking, sandals, wearing flesh, and miss out on all that he is. If you read the rest of the story, the full counsel, and gather a few more satellites, I call them, you'll find things like wrath, judgment, power, and white-hot holiness. I'm going to show you three pictures. I'm begging you to engage these pictures. This first one's difficult. John chapter 12. Turn there. Everything in you muster a focus right now. With everything in you, engage this. We're looking for Jesus outside the Gospels. And John 12 is going to lead us to a place that will leave you arrested. Okay, get ready. John chapter 12. You may see the heading there. Uh, part of the way over on the right side of the page, if you're in the ESV, it's called the unbelief of the people. That was the situation in verse 37. It says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that's where we're going, listen, might be fulfilled. And Isaiah wrote, he said, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, listen, he said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, here's the key. If you'll be an investigator with me for the next couple minutes and try and get the clue, here's the clue. Isaiah said these things because he saw His glory. Whose glory? Jesus' glory. He saw His glory and He spoke of Him. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to extra gospel sources to understand our Jesus. Isaiah chapter 6. Stepping outside the gospel. I want to show you that the clue connects with this passage. And when I do that, you'll get the treat afterwards. Don't disengage. Just because it's hard doesn't mean you can disengage. I'm not going to let you. Look in chapter 6 of Isaiah. It's on page 571 of your pew Bible, or your ESV. Isaiah writes, he says, in in verse 8 of chapter 6, he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? That's a common... Mission, missional sort of verse, another, another sugar stick sermon that can be easily preached, fun to preach. And then I said, here I am, God, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, these words are going to sound familiar, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then Isaiah said, how long, O Lord? (laughs) That doesn't sound like a good job. Preach and their ears will be deafened? Keep preaching and their hearts will be dulled and fattened? That's exactly what happened when Jesus did these things. Jesus fulfilled this prophetic passage. This is what John imports into chapter 12 of John. 
This passage right here. He said he wrote these things because he saw his glory. Now look back at the beginning of chapter 6. Let's see if you get to treat. A passage maybe you've read before, you've studied before. Look for Jesus in this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Huh. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. I want to confess to you that I've read that my entire life and thought of the Father. My entire life. It sounds like God the Father, doesn't it? Because Jesus was just sandals wearing, walking, talking, healing, albeit, crucified, risen, Jesus. I've never looked for Jesus in this passage, but it says Isaiah wrote these things because he saw his glory. Whose glory? Jesus' glory. It's right here. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, our Jesus high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, what does Isaiah say? He didn't say, hey, look, there's cool Jesus. What's up, Jesus? Give me a high five. He says, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Where's a crack in the floor that I can hide from his white-hot holiness? He says, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips standing in Pure holiness. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of kings. The Lord of hosts. You ever read that and thought of Jesus? Isaiah did. Jesus did. If your view of Jesus is contained to the Gospels, you miss out on the holiness, the power, the majesty. Of our Jesus. You can reduce him to a Michael Bolton lookalike. Sweetie pie. Pushover. But when you take in the full counsel on our Jesus, you're looking for a crack in the floor. Holiness, man. Here's the next one. This is my favorite. Revelation chapter 4. I want you to see this. I don't want you to disengage. It's not the matter of knowing, but the manner of knowing. It says, knowing me means knowing the Father. Seeing me is seeing the Father. That Isaiah 6 passage is a great picture of that. Let's look for Jesus outside of the Gospels in the book of Revelation, written by John, the same writer of the book of John, but outside the Gospels. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Realize John is writing these words. He said, Christ come to him, or a messenger of some sort come to him, and reveal these end times realities. And he's revealing to them an end time reality of the throne room. It's like John is peeking into the throne room here for a moment, and we're going to peek in with him. Look in there. And in verse, or chapter 4, we're going to peek in and look at the Father. And in chapter 5, we're going to look at the Son. Look. 
says, come up here and I will show you what must, must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders or with 24 thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. These were not humans likely. These 24 elders had just been created to just probably amen God over all creation. God makes a decision. They say, amen. They're not humans. There are times in Revelation where humans can learn a song, but the elders can't learn it. These are like supra, not sub, but not super, but suprahuman. They're different from humans, these 24 elders. And they're clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. It's a picture that the fullness of the Holy Spirit is there in the throne room. And before the throne, there was, a, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Whoosh. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. These dudes are like they're built on committee. It's like the committee on committees got together and built these guys. Listen, they're full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, these 24 elder dudes, these regal elders, fall down before Him who's seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. That sounds like the Father to me. You say, man, that's appropriate now. Flashes of peals of lightning... People falling down, worshiping. Now let's look for Jesus. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Proclaiming. Saying it over and over again. Listen to him say it. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's got the stuff? Who's got the goods to open the scroll and break the seals? And it says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. They're looking under rocks. Anybody around here can open this scroll? Is anybody sinless perfection? Is anybody power embodied? To where they can open this scroll. And John begins to weep. He says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said, oh, John, it's okay. Check it out. I know the counsel of God's will. He says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures built on committee, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of, of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll 
I say, is anybody worthy to open the scroll? And it's like crickets. Looking under rocks. Nothing. You hear John weeping. Then you see the lamb standing there as if slain. And he goes over and he takes that scroll from the Father. I'm just going to say, he better be God to take something from God. He takes that scroll from the right hand of him. He was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, these regal elders, these dudes built on committee, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you. These guys who spent all eternity worshiping the Father are singing to the Son, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, even Greenville, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I look and heard... Around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads. That's a bunch. And thousands and thousands of angels saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Leave Him in the Gospels and you never see that glory. Man, I hope to be that myriad right now. I want to be in the myriad. I want this church to be in the myriad from the noise of what the world screams at us, from the flesh of what it screams at us, for us to be ripped from that and to scream with the myriads, worthy is the Lamb to take the scroll and to open its seals because we've seen the glory of the Lord. And I heard every creature in heaven, please let Ben be in that. And on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders, the regal elders, fell down and worshipped. You see his glory? You step outside the Gospels, man. You add some satellites and you see the godness of this Jesus. And things will never be the same. His words will never be light. Let me show you the last one. It's short. It's short but rich. Revelation 19. We're looking, remember at the godness of this Jesus, that he looks like the Father. Revelation chapter 19. I don't try and timeline the book of Revelation. For some of you might be into that. I encourage you to just study the Revelation more, and it creates kind of a hermeneutic or an interpretation style of humility. Because things just don't work on the timeline. So I have extreme hermeneutic of humility when it comes to this. But what seems to happen is at the end of the age, when the Lord comes back, is that He will take His people, there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb, and then what takes place is about what I'm, what I'm about to read, and then Satan and the beast will be thrown into a bottomless pit for a thousand years, and that the Lord will reign on earth for a thousand years with His martyred saints. And then at the end of that, He'll let the beast and Satan back out, And the world will just run right back to him. 
And then he will take the beast and Satan and throw them in the pit forever, or in the bottomless pit, the fiery pit forever. So forget the timeline. It's just kind of a bird's eye view, what I want you to see. Just climb into the, really, Revelation is like a gumbo of truth. You can't, a, a gumbo is not linear. It's just kind of a soup. You just crawl in it. So crawl in this soup with me and bump into this reality of this Jesus. It says in verse 11 of chapter 19, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. I bet he's big. Brad Cardwell's got a horse I get to see every morning when we're working out. Brad, this horse is big, but he looks like a little pony on Brad because Brad's such a moose. <laughs> this horse, I bet, is huge. This big old white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns, like stack them up. Not just one, one won't do. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Does that sound familiar? John chapter 1, verse 1. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. He's out in front in that big white stallion, the slobber coming out of the horse's mouth. We're all behind him on our little horses, little ponies. Giddy up. We're going to go out and kick some serious behind. And we go out, and where was it? The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I bet ours are smaller. And from his mouth comes a, sh- a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he's got a big old tattoo. It says, King of Kings. Bam! Lord of Lords. Bam! He's the only one worthy of wearing that tattoo. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. There's other people who've seen this. It might sound familiar to you. Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. I can't remember how the rest of it goes. I don't sing it. He has loosed his swift sword. There it is. A woman named Julia Howe wrote that during the, the Civil War. What she thought was that the country was actually doing that bidding or that the Union was doing that bidding, so she missed it. But I appreciate that she was eating her Bible, although misdirected, because this is Jesus going to do this. Where was I? Verse 17, then I saw it because he comes out on his horse. Slobber coming out of the horse's mouth. He's in front. We're behind him. And he's coming out. And come to find out, we're just like cheerleaders. Because he's going to do the work. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come on, birds. Dinner time. Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings. The flesh of of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. You want to know whose flesh that is? That's the flesh of those who didn't recognize him as the I am. That's the consequences. Come on, birds. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who's sitting on the horse. We're just cheerleaders. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's bad. That's good bad. That's amazing bad. That's power embodied. That's wrath. That's white hot holiness of a Christ that will return and judge the quick and the dead. And he will defeat those armies who've gone against him with eyes of blazing, diadem wearing, blood dipped, robe wearing, troop leading, sword bearing, wine press treading, fury and wrath wielding. He's the enemy crushing God. You leave him in the Gospels, you never see that. And what he has to say is just as mere suggestion. The church that he comes back, that he's died for, ah, it's optional. <laughs> I might go to church if I find a cool one. Where they don't expect anything of me. They're not in my stuff. When you recognize him as God, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who was and is and is to come, when you see him with tattoo wielding, sword wielding, opening up a whole can, say, come on birds. When you see that sort of power, you see holiness of Jesus. You see the godness of Jesus. You're on your way to what he has to say, having weight. To being his people, meaning something. Not just, where you go to church, man? Oh man, I'm part of a people. I'm part of the people of God, redeemed, rescued by the finished work of Jesus Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords. I want to leave you with last week and this week. And when I say leave, don't gather your stuff. Listen to this. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's what C.S. Lewis said. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. If he's a lunatic, then he's a capable lunatic because he's a lunatic that can walk on water. Lunatic that could give flesh to legs that couldn't walk. A lunatic who could feed multitudes with a few loaves and fishes. He's a capable lunatic. And he was a sinless lunatic too, witnessed by everybody that came in contact with him. If he's a lunatic, he's a pretty amazing lunatic. If he's a liar, he's at least a committed one because he stuck to his lie to the very end through extreme brutality, extreme suffering. Or maybe, just maybe, and I hope that all of us would die for this reality, he was and is sinless perfection. He was and is God the Son. He was and is power embodied. He was and is preparing an eternal place for an undeserving people with eternal hands. He's taking His people to Himself, being Himself the treasure. He's getting people to Himself as the way, the only way. He goes by God. Hey God, I am. And He even looks like God. Wisdom, character, Glory, 
mercy, grace, wrath, judgment, and holiness. It's all there. My hope and prayer these last couple of weeks, my burden has been that we join Isaiah in seeing his glory. That we join John in seeing his white-hot holiness. And that what he says has more weight. That what he's done means more. That being part of his people has more weight. Hopefully, bearing his name will mean more to you. Let me pray. Lord, I hope and hope and hope and pray that we have, bring, we have brought such honor and glory to you. I pray that we've been diminished. That we've been decreased. I pray that we're smaller. I pray that we're lower as a result of engaging these truths that make nothing of us and make everything of your, your Son. Lord, I pray that this morning and last Sunday, that between the two of these, that these will be markers. They will be, be an Ebenezer for this people where we look back and we recognize that we follow God the Son. And that in following God the Son by His finished work, that we step weekly, daily, hourly into Your throne room and have fellowship with You. Lord, I pray that you will guard this people from ever having a view of Jesus that's anything less, even an iota less than fully God and fully man. That we testify to those things, that shepherds sit around and talk with their families about those things as we engage them and are apprehended by those realities. I pray that you will change a people to be not an ordinary people, but an extraordinary, different, God-enveloped people, gospel-engaged people who are genuine and true and sincere and for real in every aspect, that we're as real on Sunday morning as we are on Thursday, that we're wrecked sometimes, that we're hurting sometimes, but that we're genuine and real and on a very real journey following a very real God. Lord, I pray this not only for this little bitty church on the south side of town, I pray it for the other churches in our community, a genuine journey of worship and following our Jesus, God the Son. Lord, I pray for shepherds right now as we close with song. I pray for shepherds of families, both men, in some cases spiritually single mothers who are shepherding their families, or in some cases, single mothers who are shepherding their families, Lord, I pray that they will just first and foremost that you will arrest them with these truths. Men that may have never opened their Bibles in their homes, men that may have never read a single verse in front of their families, that they will begin to engage. That they will talk about these realities over lunch today. That conversations will go like this. Have you ever seen Jesus like that? And that worship will take place at Tamales or Oak Creek Estates or wherever as a result of the time that we've spent together today. I pray for shepherds that they will be arrested with these realities and they'll worship harder, deeper, longer, richer, truer. Lord, 
We worship you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.